1 Corinthians 9, the first 18 verses this morning. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. Be honest. Don't you just love to talk about yourself? I saw research that said, on average, we spend 60% of the words we use in conversation talking about ourselves. And incidentally, it jumps to 80% of social media is involved. We know that's not ideal. When someone else talks like that, we walk away from the conversation annoyed that all he did was talk about himself. But lest we swing the pendulum too far in the other direction, let's remember that there's a time and season for every lawful thing. The antidote for talking too much about yourself can't be to say nothing of your own thoughts, feelings, and experiences. You can talk about yourself. You can also refrain. And there, in this little tiny sliver of application is the principle Paul continues to unpack in chapter 9. In Christ, you are free. And just because you can anything doesn't mean you have to. That's life under grace. 
Chapter 8 ends with Paul expressing willingness to swear off meat forever if the alternative is a stumbling block to the gospel for his brother. In the last several chapters, he's been pressing in on the tension of Christian freedom. Being free in Christ means that within the boundaries of God's law, you can do anything. You want to enjoy sexual intimacy? You can marry and do so freely. You want to eat meat regardless of its provenance? You can. All foods are clean. Here in chapter 9, he gives additional examples related to ministry. Apostles, and by extension all ministers of the gospel, are free to marry. And apostles, and by extension ministers, are free to receive pay for their labors. That side of the freedom tension has been difficult for some in the Corinth community. Paul calls them weaker brothers. But this is life under grace. We are free. The other side of the freedom tension comes from how Paul tells us to engage with those who struggle with this liberty. We engage, Paul says, by laying down the very rights that are secure. Just because we can doesn't mean we must. That's the very definition of freedom. But others in Corinth were struggling with this side of the coin. Laying down one's rights, then how can you claim to be free? The incongruity was troubling, so troubling that for some of them, it called into question Paul's authority. Another puts their perspective like this. If Paul were a true apostle and enjoyed an apostle's authority, he would not allow himself to be restricted in these ways. They're thinking that because Paul can eat meat sacrificed to idols, he must. But when you say it that way, doesn't it sound a lot less like freedom? It's in this context that Paul begins to talk about himself, and he should. In their teaching, and especially in their preaching, ministers of Christ take the truth of Scripture and show its integration and application into the human experience. And this includes experience from their own lives and observations. Our family recently attended the retirement reception for Dean Turbeville, a dear friend, former pastor of ours and of Karen and Stevens. And throughout the night, many people complimented the same thing. Dean's persistent and thoughtful observation of the world around him. From nature to human interaction and art in all its forms, Dean was always observing and thinking critically about what he saw. Here's a good description. Ministers of the word must be diligent, diligent to listen, watch, observe, and pay attention to whatever is assumed to be just, right, true, and useful in this age. They convey the brilliant truth of heavenly light and a lot of power when they demonstrate that what is found in the word of God is consistent 
with what is found in the experience of human beings. Isn't that what makes for good and useful preaching? You can say you don't want the minister to talk about himself the whole time, and we don't. But you do want the minister to convey the truths of Scripture applied and are consistent with the experiences of human beings. It's what makes it seem real and relevant to us. So the apostle is going to talk about himself, not in a self-congratulatory or arrogant way, but to convey the brilliant light of heavenly truth found in the experience of a human being. Paul's life and ministry is an example of the very freedom tension principle that the Corinthians are missing from both extremes. Not only that, but while life under this principle is free, it isn't easy. Forgoing opportunities, laying down rights, and sacrificing for the sake of another, these are godly but not easy uses of freedom. Do you lead then lead like this. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that he is not asking them to do something that he himself is unwilling to do. He too lives free in Christ. He too experiences the freedom tension of walking with Jesus. So he too is willing not to do everything that he can do in that freedom. The examples that come to mind first for Paul are the topics that were already underway in this conversation, marriage and food. And in what context has Paul laid down his rights to such things? Here, in his ministry, in ways the Corinthians could stop and observe for themselves. And so he begins in the text by defending the existence of his rights. After all, he's not laying them down if they didn't belong to him in the first place. So he begins, am I not free? And then in the first three verses, he defends the apostolic authority that others are calling into question every time Paul surrenders his rights. When he says, have I not seen Christ? It's a, it's a summary statement of seeing the risen Christ and being called by Christ and appointed into this ministry. That Christ appointed him to this ministry is evidenced by the historical facts and, he says, by its success among the Corinthians. People are being converted. People are growing by grace. People are worshiping in spirit and in truth. And so there, Christ is at work through his ministers. This section of text doesn't appear very dramatic in English, but through the structure and the use of some technical terms in Greek, it's clear that what Paul is doing is providing a legal defense for his ministry. It's as if he's on trial. And that defense will be relevant in a few verses when Paul will claim that he has the right to receive compensation for his ministry among the churches. Paul says the laborer deserves his wages, implying that what he and the other ministers are doing is work. 
I was told in seminary that the challenge with evaluating a pastor is that he's probably either the hardest working or the laziest man in town, but it will take you two years to figure out which it is. That's why I confess my bias for pastors who have proven themselves as hard workers outside of ministry. It doesn't mean a man who has only pastored isn't a hard worker, but it's an extra level of comfort to see a man enter ministry who has proven his work ethic elsewhere. And Paul says, here's the proof. Look around. Look at yourselves, Corinthian church. You're the proof. I have done the good and hard work of pastoring, and that work conveys a right to provision. So then in verses 3 through 12, he just lays out a sequence of example after example of common sense principles that affirm the right. Ministers should be provided for from those who benefit from the ministry. And if that minister chooses in his freedom to be married, his wife and family should be provided for as well. That's what the other apostles do, verse 5. That's what soldiers do, verse 7. And vine dressers and shepherds look around, Paul says, and see this principle in application everywhere. The laborer has a right to provision from within the gains of his labor. But wait, he says, there's more. Verse 8, the law says the same. It's not just a common sense principle. It's a command from Scripture. Paul only references one of them here, but it's many places where Scripture teaches this principle as a command. Here he points out that the Lord commands cattle be allowed to feed from the fields in which they labor. And Paul asks us, do you think the Lord issued this command only for the benefit of cattle? No. It's also for the sake of people who have a right to labor in hope of a share of the results. So that's the longest section of this passage. I'm going to make it the shortest section of this sermon and just leave it at this. By every earthly and heavenly way of looking at it, Paul has a right to harvest provision from the fields in which he labors. Now that may not sound controversial to you. I used to think objections to that idea were apocryphal, but I've seen them too many times with my own eyes and was in ministry just long enough to learn it. And no matter how much money the pastor makes, there will be those who think he makes too much. But ministry should be a sacrifice, they'll say, as if financial sacrifice is the only kind we should consider. That's more than I made at his age, or that's more than I make now, as though there's an exemption for covetousness when it comes to a pastor. Calvin points out another common objection. He says it might be objected that laborers connected with this life should without doubt have material reward, but it's otherwise with the gospel because its fruit is spiritual. Hence, the minister of the word, if he would receive fruit corresponding to his labor, ought to demand nothing that is material. 
the idea that spiritual work would only get spiritual pay is flatly contradicted by the text. In fact, Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. For in proportion of the superiority of the soul above the body, so those who labor in the preaching of the gospel ought to be supported. As an aside, here's another principle that the Christian life holds in tension. Our bodies have value. Our souls have more. To say that soul work is of more value is not to diminish those who labor over material things. Each of us does as we're called by the Lord. And all of us do soul work in non-professional capacities. And it's also true that the work of ministry is of exceptional value. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. How could he say such a thing? He who believed so deeply in the value of human flesh that he took it upon himself to redeem it. He said it because bodies matter and souls matter more. Children, it often feels to you like parents and pastors and elders are looking for physical, external compliance, being right in body on the outside, good on the outside where people can see it. And that's our fault because sometimes we treat you as if to suggest that that is what matters most. But hear this. You could obey every command I ever bark at you. You could cheerfully complete every task you're assigned. You could go the rest of your life without making trouble for anyone. Your body can comply with everything asked of it, and your soul can still remain in hell-bound rebellion. And Scripture says that if I'm among those who lead you to that conclusion... That body obedience matters more than having a soul that rests in Christ? It's better for me that a millstone be hung around my neck. Bodies matter. Honor God with your bodies, children, but souls matter more. And that work, the soul work that is done for the glory of God, that work is of exceptional value in heaven and on earth, and it should be treated as such. Paul describes his work as an obligation. Now that's an interesting tension given his starting point of freedom. Look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's actually beyond tension. That's a downright paradox. <laughs> Slavery to Christ is freedom. Freedom for self is slavery. That's why Paul willingly obeys the call of God in his life, even to the point of laying down rights that are otherwise 
his. He goes to the extreme. He'll lay down rights and he says, I would keep laying them down if I starved. I would keep laying them down if I died. Because if the exercise of those rights, just doing it because I can, costs him effectiveness in ministry, the thing that he must do, he will gladly lay them down. No bitterness, no resentment, no martyr complex. Look at me in my life, the sacrifice. He delights to lay them down because the things that he can do are not nearly so valuable as the thing that he must do. He even uses the word woe here. That's an important word in a New Testament context. Paul believes that purposely diminishing gospel ministry would justifiably bring the curse of God upon him. And even so, he ministers not out of fear, but out of delight. Verse 18, he calls the preaching of the gospel his reward. It's what he must do, not only out of obedience, but out of fulfilling his calling, and his purpose. When you do before the Lord the thing that God has made and called you to do, no matter what sacrifices of rights you make, you will be fulfilled. You will have your reward in the very doing of the thing. I'm going to make you suffer as I did this week, thinking through where might that do some good work in your own life? Where does laying down what you could do create more effectiveness with what you must do before the Lord? God made you for a purpose. He's given you callings, and it's almost certainly the case that in the fulfillment of those callings, you will have to lay down some rights that are otherwise yours. But doing what you were made to do, even with such sacrifices, is itself the reward of your calling. That's what fulfillment in life is. Because he's a slave to Christ, Paul is free to do or to not do anything the law allows. I think of Paul as the anti-Jonah. Think about it. Jonah also had a calling to preach to the nations. But Jonah did so grudgingly, reserving every right for himself and grumbling at every necessary sacrifice. And in the end, Jonah is miserable. He's done the thing that God called him to do. He got glorious results that God intended. But Jonah missed out on the reward of doing it. The Ninevites were converted, but Jonah sits there at the end of the book, still bitter and unfulfilled. For Paul, the opportunity to preach to the Corinthians and potential converts like them is the reward. It's fulfilling the calling of his life, and he understands that alone to be a great blessing. It's interesting how two people can be called to do the same thing, 
face similar challenges and sacrifices, have similar outcomes from their work, and yet their experience is night and day. Paul could eat meat sacrificed to any idol the Corinthians could invent. But if that choice hindered the fulfillment of his calling before God, he'd rather starve. He could have asked for financial provision. He's made that case clearly from the text for not only himself, but also for a wife as well if he had chosen. But if that choice hindered the fulfillment of his calling before God, he'd rather go broke. Where is the tension of freedom at work in your life? Is your conscience bound by seeing everything before God as an obligation? Is most of your spiritual life exhausting efforts of musts and can'ts to get yourself good enough? Or on the other side, do you hold on to your personal freedom and your rights so tightly that you practically never put others first or surrender those rights for their good because they're yours? Somewhere between those extremes is life under grace. Confident enough in our freedom to live gratefully before God with souls that are at peace and to lay down the rights of our freedom when that's what's best for our brother or sister. In a self-care world, or as we say in my house, me first and the gimme gimme's, Our sacrifices can be a glorious shock to the cultural system. I I know many of you are often looking for ways that you can be more impactful for Christ in the lives of unbelievers. Don't overlook this one. To willingly lay down a right is an attention-grabbing dash of salt in a bland world. When you live this way, people will notice. Austin just told us in the prayer time about someone who is noticing the otherwise inexplicable self-sacrifice to serve and love another. You men who've been on the lead with character trip, you know the story of my former elder, Glenn Robinson, and his unbelieving son, David, who came on the trip as an adult. And David simply observed for three days men who did not know his father serve him, carrying him like like in a throne chair over rocks that he couldn't walk over, giving him strength when he was weak. And David observed that otherwise inexplicable love and care and said, that is like something the world can't offer. And in it, he sees Christ. That's why Paul held these things in God-honoring tension. In Christ, we're perfectly free. And in Christ, we lay down those freedoms willingly. Freedom is not, I must do what's best for me. Freedom is, I can lay down my rights for my sister. 
Freedom is not, I must look after myself. Freedom is, I can lay down my life for my brother. Because as it turns out, life under that obligation to self isn't freedom, it's tyranny. It's life under grace that provides us the glorious tensions of freedom. I can do anything lawful, and I can freely choose to lay down anything I can do. In this, you will glorify Christ. You will find your calling, your purpose, and your reward, for under grace, you are actually and meaningfully free.